chapter 4 is where I would like to direct your attention. That little prophet right after the book of Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, large books in the Hebrew scriptures, and then Daniel, uh, and then the little book of Hosea, you'll find uh, right there. I'm still in Ezekiel. There we go. Hosea chapter 4 is where I want to direct your attention. In a minute, we're going to start reading in verse uh, number 4. Um, I'm not sure if you followed much of the news this week uh, with all of the election coverage. It got obscured a little bit. Uh, but there was something that, uh, interesting that happened in a courtroom on Wednesday in the state of Illinois. Uh, former Speaker of the House, Dennis Hastert, was sentenced to 15 months of prison in order to pay $250,000 in a fine to a victim's fund. Uh, Dennis Hastert now is the highest-ranking U.S. government official who's ever been sent uh, to prison. Uh, The story is a little bit complicated of how he got there, but uh, it appears that for the last several years, Dennis Hastert has been paying money Uh, as part of a secret agreement with a young man that he sexually abused in the 1970s. And in the process of paying this money secretly, he has been committing financial fraud. Uh, Before he ran for office in 1980, Dennis Hastert was a high school teacher. He was a wrestling coach. And during those years, he committed grievous sexual abuse against at least four members of the high school team. Now, the statutes of limitations uh, have passed for those crimes, but not for the financial cover-up, and that's what he was eventually arrested for. Uh, During the sentencing hearing, they had testimony. Uh, One of the women who spoke was a woman by the name of Jolene Bird. She was one of the victim's sisters. The man that Hastert had abused had died in 2005, but she stood up before the court. She said this, I am here to hold you accountable for abusing my brother. I know your secret and you couldn't bribe or intimidate your way out. You think you can deny your abuse of Steve because he can no longer speak for himself. That's why I'm here. Uh, Scott Cross is one of the victims. This is what he said. As a 17-year-old boy, I was devastated. I tried to figure out why Coach Hastert had singled me out. I felt terribly alone. Today I understand I did nothing to bring this on, but at the age of 17, I could not understand what happened or why. These crimes were committed so long ago that none of the parents of these boys are still alive to speak about this issue. But if you could just for a minute in your imagination enter into, uh, appropriate for yourself, some of the thoughts or feelings you might have as a parent if you found out that this had happened to one of your sons. You had entrusted your sons into the care of this coach and he had taken that authority, that responsibility, and turned it into this vile, terrible sin. If you can do that, if you can enter into that, just appropriate those thoughts or feelings for just a moment, then you are ready to read the book of Hosea this morning in chapter 4 and what we're going to talk about today. Because Hosea chapter 4 is about how people who should have known better abused the authority that they had and the damage that resulted from it. Um, Hosea is the book that we're talking about these days, and, and Hosea is a book that easily divides into two sections. The first three chapters are about Hosea's family. Hosea married a woman. He knew this uh, by God's command. He knew he married this woman that he knew would be unfaithful to him. 
And together the two of them had three children. And the names of those three children all point to Hosea's, uh, to Israel, the nation's relationship before God. This whole family situation actually points to greater spiritual realities. Hosea had an unfaithful wife. Her name was Gomer. God has an unfaithful covenant people. Their name is Israel. Now, last Sunday, we started working our way through the chapters where Hosea's family kind of recedes into the background. And uh, instead of, of talking about Hosea's family in detail, we have uh, sermon excerpts. We have um, just references and allusions bits of some of the messages that Hosea delivered in his 50 years of ministry. And what ties these passages together, it's not always easy to see how they divide and where the sections of the the text are, but what ties these messages together is the number three. Hosea had three children. Uh, Last week we talked about three great sins of the people. And this morning we're going to talk about three sinful groups that Hosea identifies. Priests the people in general, and then specifically their daughters, the priests, the people, and then the girls. Uh, There's three groups mentioned, but in reality his focus is on the priests, those engaged in spiritual leadership, the men responsible for teaching God's word and interceding for the people before God. I have a warning this morning. This is going to be a painful passage for our elders. Every now and then we come across those. Um, this passage, I think, reminds me of what the New Testament says when in Hebrews thirteen seventeen it starts great. If you're an elder, oh, that verse starts great. It doesn't end so well for you. It says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, which sounds awesome, except it continues. Because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Oh. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit for you. Or James 3, 1, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. There is accountability to be faced. This passage reminds us of that. Accountability for elders, for Sunday school teachers, for those in positions of spiritual leadership. It's a sharp section of Scripture about the influence that you wield. Now, I want to read it, and I want to unfold the passage this morning. As I do so, I want to reflect on the theme. The theme, really, of this passage is the destruction that's wrought by the dereliction of duty of these priests. When you don't do, as a spiritual leader, what God has called you to do, this is what happens. It's disastrous. And after I read it, what I want to do is I want to point out to you four ideas that emerge from the text. This is a negative text. I want to state them positively. What does God call you to do as a a person in a position of spiritual leadership in a congregation? So let's read Hosea 4, starting in verse 4 through verse 14. Then we'll move through the text here. Uh, The text begins, But let no one bring a charge. Let no one accuse another, for your people are like those who bring charges against a priest. You stumble day and night, and the prophets stumble with you. So I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priest. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I will also ignore your children. The more the priests 
The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. And it will be like people, like priests. I will punish both of them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat but not have enough. They will engage in prostitution but not flourish because they have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution. Old wine and new wine take away their understanding. My people consult a wooden idol and a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth where the shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughters-in-law to adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. A people without understanding will come to ruin. So there's three groups that are mentioned here. You saw them, perhaps priests, then the people, and then the daughters. But God's rebuke here is really for the priests. That's where he reserves his strictest words. In fact, you notice he says about the daughters, he's not even going to punish them for what they have done. But he is very concerned with these spiritual leaders. They have responsibilities before God. They are not fulfilling them, and this is what the result is. So let me state how they were supposed to lead in a way that will perhaps be an encouragement to spiritual leaders in our church. Four callings that you have before God. Number one, God calls you to reverent teaching. God calls you to reverent teaching. If you want to lead well, here is what is required, reverent teaching. Now, remember that in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4 here, God has identified three sins that the, nations are, are, the nation is guilty of. There's no love, no faithfulness, no acknowledgement of God. And what might be happening is, is that somebody's hearing this message from Hosea. Maybe they're thinking to themselves, well, whose fault is this, these, that these sins are present? Who, who's, who's guilty of this? Well, God, the Hosea says in verse 4, don't bring a charge, don't accuse. I'll tell you who's guilty. Now, I have to tell you, verse 4 is very difficult to understand in the Hebrew text. Your translations differ from one another. It's not easy to put this together. Um, the NIV says, your people are like those who bring charges against a priest, as if the people are charging the priest. They're, they're condemning or criticizing the, the, the priest. I think actually what the text is saying is that, that, that God has a problem with the priest. Your ESV translation uh, says um, that my contention is with you, O priest. That's good. The problem is the priests. But what the ESV leaves out is the idea of the people. The people themselves are evidence against the priests. The people are like charges brought against the priests. So follow Hosea's logic here. He starts in chapter 4. You are guilty of no love, no faithfulness, no acknowledgement of God. And I will tell you who is guilty. Uh, You can look at you people and you can know that it's the priests who are guilty. They themselves are the evidence against the priests. It's kind of like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3. I I wrote that verse down, I think. 
Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. That is, the Corinthians are evidence, their faith is a sign of the, of the legitimacy of Paul's ministry. Paul, how do we know you're an apostle? Paul says, look at the Corinthians. This group of pagans, they now believe. I'm a, I'm a true apostle. That's how you know. Huh. Okay, in Hosea's day, how do we know the priests are guilty? Look at the people and what a mess they are. The people are the charges, the evidence against the priests. Verse 5, the priests stumble day and night. Stumbling is what you do at night in the dark when you can't see. But here he says you stumble day and night all the time. It's constant. I wonder if it's related to the wine that we're going to talk about when we get to verse 11. Drunk people stumble. You're stumbling. He says in verse 5, I will destroy your mother, that is the nation. The nation of Israel is going to be destroyed. And here's the problem. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Now remember what the word knowledge means. We talked about this last week. Knowledge has two components. There's an objective part of it and a subjective. Objective knowledge here in the Bible means knowing facts about God. Knowing what he's like, who he is that he is holy, that he is powerful, that he, uh, 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 where he dwells and what he has done, knowledge, basic facts, what you can find when you look up in your biblical encyclopedia under the word G, God, those facts. That's objective. Now, subjectively, though, it, it refers, this word knowledge also includes our right response to what we know about God, being in awe of him, revering him, Um, recognizing that these facts about God call for a response on our part of fearing Him. That's what this right knowledge of God is. That's why I use this phrase, reverent teaching. There is teaching that is done, that it is done with reverence, giving God the awe that He deserves. We read in the New Testament, and we take very seriously the qualifications for elders. They're in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. We take those seriously, but here is something important, a very important qualification for spiritual leadership, revering God. Spiritual leaders aren't perfect, but they set the pace for this. They set the pace for this in a congregation. They model this. They are after knowing God, responding aright to Him. Elders are are ones who are making progress in this. You can notice it in how they pray and how they read God's Word and how they listen to God's Word. This reverence for God's teaching. Now verse 6 tells us actually how seriously God takes this. Look what it says because you have rejected knowledge, I, will also, I also reject you as my priest. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I also will ignore your children. Notice this pairing in this passage. You ignore the law, God will ignore your children. Now, on the one hand, we can think about this passage. Priests, how did you become a priest? It was a hereditary role. So all of these priests, they would have children who would become, their sons would become priests. God says, if you ignore my law, I will ignore your children. This, I'm going to reject you as being priests. Your children will not have the privileges that you have. But also, I think, though, there is an equivalence here. God's word is as important to him as your children are to you. 
we have a lot of faithful parents in the congregation. You, you, do, um, you demonstrate it in a number of ways. You're, you're diligent about having your children participate in ministries at church because you want them to hear God's word. Um, you spend your time very carefully thinking about school choices and sports opportunities. You try to help them in due time find work. You're, you take them to college for visits. You really care. You nurture and disciple and discipline and teach them. This is how carefully God wants his word set before his people with that amount of care and thoughtfulness and effort. You ever heard that expression of, Somebody will say that they'll loan you their car, their, their very special possession. And they'll hand you the keys, and as they hand you the keys, they'll say, be careful with it, this is my baby. Ever heard that expression? Here is God's word. He sets it before us with this level of concern for how it is handled and taught and revered. Sometimes when a newborn baby comes into, our, uh, it comes into the church, uh, somebody gives birth, we pray for the older siblings. This week I was talking to a, a dad and he had his son with him and his son is the youngest child in his family and his mom is about to give birth. And I looked at that little boy and I said, oh, young man, your world is about to change. Um, new babies change everything uh, except themselves, right? Um, <laughs> older siblings, older siblings, they get new responsibilities, um, uh, because newborns are time and energy intensive, there might be a little less holding of that, little, that, that older sibling, a little less cuddling, more walking, more do-it-yourselfing. You're going to have to do that yourself. Mommy can't do that for you right now. That's normal. It's good. It's part of maturity. It's part of life. That's good. But imagine if the Bible fell into your family with that level of attention that a newborn baby gets when they come. We sit around the dinner table at night and I ask questions. How was your day? Tell me something interesting that happened in fifth grade today. Tell me something that happened in second grade today. You have to ask the question like 47 times in order to get some sort of answer. But everybody gets a chance to speak around the table. And we ask everybody, what happened today? Share with us um, your thoughts and feelings about the experiences that you had today. Then we take... when. Dinner's over. We take God's word and the Bible has speaks. The Bible has a role, has a voice at the table. When we gather together, God speaks to us through his word and it's the job of spiritual leaders that this, is, this, is, that this happens, that it happens skillfully and faithfully and reverently. This is God's word. Now, look at the end of verse 7, what it says. If you neglect this, you will exchange glory for shame. Your translation might say something similar, uh, simple like that. That's the words. You'll exchange glory for shame if you, if you don't teach God's word reverently. I have a book on my bookshelf. It was written by a, a man several years ago. I've owned this book a long time, and it's about how we grow as Christians. And he uses a lot of reference, uh, as he must, speaks of the Bible, and he tries to explain what the Bible says about what it means to become more like Jesus. It's a helpful book. I don't agree with everything in it, but it's a really helpful book, and the author does his best to unfold the Bible. Well, a couple of months ago, I listened to an interview with this author, and he has left that aspect of life, and now he is a leadership consultant and a leadership coach. 
I went online to look at his website just to see what was there, and there was nothing, not a Bible verse within a thousand miles of that website. All scrubbed, all taken off. Um, you, you can go to click on my references to my books, and the book that I own is not on that list. He has... Well, I don't know his motives. I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know exactly where he is, is, is coming from, where he's going, but it looks to me like he has exchanged glory for shame. God calls you to reverent teaching. Now, second here, God calls you to lead at a short-term loss. God calls you to lead at a short-term loss. I'm going to clarify this some, but look here at verse 8 and see what it says. They feed on the priests. This is what they do. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. Now, how can this be here? The, the priests are profiting. They're benefiting from the sins of the people. Remember that when the people committed sins, they would bring sacrifices. And part of the sacrifices, some of them went to the priests and they were food for the priests. It's God's system for how he took care of the priests. But what appears to be happening is that the priests are not just receiving this in the sorrow that they should. This is a sign of sin. But they're rejoicing in this. All right, bring on the sin, bring on the food. There's kind of a relishing of this. They're, they're delighting in this. They, they seem to, they, they've gotten to the point where they like the power that comes from uh, being priests. It's their gain, not their loss. It reminds me a little bit of the problem of sin taxes. Familiar with sin taxes and that phrase? Uh, A sin tax, um, the government identifies certain activities that it doesn't think you should be doing, and in order to discourage you, it taxes you. Um, Financial discouragement. Financial taxes, think of taxes on cigarettes or taxes on um, gambling winnings. The problem is, though, that the government then very becomes easily dependent upon that revenue. Smoking is bad for you, and the government is going to tax you for your cigarettes, but don't stop because the government really needs the money. And if they don't get enough money, they'll sue the tobacco companies. But don't worry because they're going to use the money to keep people from smoking with the hope that that's not too effective because they really do need the tax money from cigarettes. And if they need more money uh, and they don't get enough money from gambling, they'll just start their own lottery. And it's okay if you go buy a lottery ticket because it helps senior citizens in Pennsylvania because the state of Pennsylvania has no other way to help senior citizens except you gambling away your money at the lottery. It's not difficult to find people who claim to be spiritual leaders who are operating at a short-term gain, not a short-term loss. It's not not hard. It's not hard to find people like that. They all tend to congregate on one channel on television. They're the type of people who tell you that in order to serve well, they need private jets and mountain retreats and Caribbean resorts for reflection. Now, in contrast to that, what's happening here, here, we find the model of the Apostle Paul. Look look what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1. He says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, Paul's not saying that Christ's sacrifice was insufficient. What he's saying is that in order to get the gospel to the Colossians, there's going to be suffering involved. In order for the news of Christ's afflictions to reach them, there's going to be suffering. And Paul is bearing that suffering. 
I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Listen, to this end... I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Paul's ministry was a ministry of suffering. It involved labor and hardship and pain and effort. There was a crown waiting for him. There was long-term gain, but there was short-term loss. The elders in our church know this. Uh, They work hard at their jobs, their vocations, schools or businesses or where they work for their employers. They work really hard. And then they labor here at our church for this work, late into the night, at inconvenient hours. Our elders just spent uh, the first week, uh, we were talking about some particular issues in the congregation Thursday at our meeting last week. We were discouraged and distressed. Uh, the, The elders in our church have been fasting and praying this week. Everybody picked a day. There's... Short-term loss. There's judgment here for these priests who will not not embrace that call. They can't get satisfied. The priests cannot achieve any sort of satisfaction. Look at verse 10. They'll eat but not have enough. They'll engage in prostitution but not flourish. Back up in verse 7, they've been multiplying. But here, there's no flourishing. There's priestly sterility going on. What's very interesting to me, last week I, I quoted a section of James chapter 4 to you. We're talking about conflict. And, and think, think with me again about how that passage relates to what Hosea is talking about. I wonder if James in chapter 4 isn't elaborating on this section of Hosea chapter 4. Look, the relationship between spiritual adultery and unfulfilled desires in James 4. Same thing happens here in Hosea 4, but look at James 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. That sounds like the priests, right? You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. When you try to satisfy your desires apart from God, they will never be fulfilled. Every drug addict knows this. Every alcoholic, every porn addict knows this. Now, Verse 11 starts in an odd place. I think what happens in verse 11 is that there's a proverb that's slipped in here. Old wine and new wine take away their understanding. I think that's... Hosea's kind of switching a little bit what he's talking about, and he inserts a proverb. It's as if, as if when he's preaching, he stops and he says, you know, it's like that saying, a stitch in time saves nine. He, he slips his proverb in here. Old wine and new wine take away their understanding. And he's going to talk about understanding for the rest of the passage. That's how verse 14 ends. A people without understanding will come to ruin. 
He's getting into something else. He's changing a little bit. He's going to start talking about the people. And here's a third idea about influence that you should keep in mind as, as we change here a little bit. God calls you to understand that without reverent knowledge, people become foolish. Without reverent knowledge, people become foolish. Being drunk and spiritual adultery both have the same consequences. They make you foolish. Alcoholics stumble on the sidewalk. Those who are untaught, who have no access to reverent teaching, to the knowledge of God, they stumble through life. And the evidence is in the lives of the people and what do they, what they do. What do they do? They consult God, wooden idols. They have God's words. They don't look at God's words. They look at uh, diviner's rods. They, uh, they go down and chop down a tree and with part of it they burn and make their bread and with part of it they make an idol and worship it. How'd they pick which piece to worship? Foolishness. G.K. Chesterton said this, When men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. The alternate to not believing in God is not believing nothing. It means that you'll believe anything. There were some news stories that came out of the the nation of Iceland recently. Uh, A study done by an Icelandic Humanist Association reported that the percentage of Icelanders under age 25 who believe that God created the world is 0.0%. There's nobody who believes in creation in Iceland under age 25. 0.0%. At the same time, a few months earlier, the New York Times also reported on a rise of Nordic paganism in Iceland. Uh, uh, in, in Norway, there's a significant interest in ghosts, ghost hunting, and ghosts uh, communicating with ghosts. Some people believe that the alternative to Christianity is secularism, the belief in nothing, but secularism doesn't last. It's unstable. People who don't believe in God become pa- capable of believing in anything, like worshiping wood. You know, in our culture where this is most evident, this, this confusion that comes from a lack of reverent teaching, it, it's on the news all the time, you can't escape from it, is uh, our culture and our confusion about our sexual identity. Uh, you've heard again, over and over again, about the bathroom bill in North Carolina. Here's an interesting side note. Think about something else. There is a growing movement, a growing interest in something called transableism. Not transgenderism, but transableism. Transableism is the condition experienced by people who feel that they are out of place in their fully abled body so that they do things to themselves intentionally to introduce disability to their bodies. Uh, The Canadian National Post, a newspaper in Canada, had an article last summer about a man named Jason. Jason cut his arm off uh, intentionally because... He, internally, he felt out of place in his fully functioning body. So he cut his arm off so he would feel more normal in his body. Just had the, he self-identified as disabled. Now, does Jason have a mental disability uh, because of this desire that he has to cut off his arm? Um, 
you might say, yes, uh, he, he's, he's mentally ill. But what about people who want to cut off fully functioning male or female organs because they don't feel at home in their male or female body? If you suggest that they have mental illness, you're bigoted and intolerant. That is a foolish and, and um, it's cultural insanity. There's no rational reason why you can tell a man he can't he can cut off his male organs, but tell Jason that he can't cut off his arm. No reason to object to one, but not the other. People become foolish without reverent teaching. Now finally here, one, one, more, one more calling. God calls you to recognize the harm that spreads. God calls you to recognize the harm that spreads. We're not just talking about foolishness, actually. We're talking about danger. A lack of reverent teaching makes people fools, and then it hurts. It brings harm, great harm. Here, the the harm is in the nation's daughters, their children. Look again here at verse 13. In the middle of it, it says, your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughters-in-law to adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution or your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery. Why? Why not? Why? Because the men themselves contort with, consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. Uh, here's the, the chain of command. The priests are not teaching reverently God's word People are becoming foolish and they're turning to idolatry and to uh, consorting with temple prostitutes. And as a result of that, daughters are being swept up into this. After he talks about these verses in his really fine commentary on Hosea, uh, Dwayne Garrett includes a long section about feminism and the book of Hosea. Hosea is not among feminists the most popular book. It depicts a woman here as the guilty uh, 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 sinner here in this this marriage. Uh, Here is a text that says, in this culture, women are being hurt, and they're being hurt because the men are setting the stage for it. I know that's not not an empowering feminist message, but this is what God is observing. The men are engaged in cultic prostitution, and they are encouraging or forcing their daughters into it. The men are responsible for this. I don't think this is hard to see in our own culture. Again, this is not what, what somebody would consider an empowering message for women, but, but follow me for just a minute. Have you ever noticed that the magazine covers at the grocery store for men and women have the same cover picture on them? same type of picture. Um, the, the covers of, uh, say, Maxim Magazine and Cosmopolitan, which my grocery store covers up occasionally, I'm thankful, they have the same type of coverage covers, scantily clad women. Why is that? Well, the pictures for men are pictures of the women they want to have, and the pictures for women are pictures of women they want to be. Who sets the standard? In the last few years, I've read articles uh, uh, detailing, describing changing behavior on college campuses. Uh, What's happening on college campuses across the United States is that the population of men is going down. The population of women is going up. The percentage of men and women is changing on college campuses. So there's more competition for dating, uh, more competition among the women to find eligible young men. So what are the women doing by and large 
they are lowering their own standards of sexual behavior in order to make themselves more competitive for men. Who's setting the standard? Some 19-year-old fool guy in some dorm setting the standard. Paul Tripp wants to ask us about the insanity that takes place in a culture where we put our daughters to sleep and cut them open with knives so that we can insert plastic bags of silicone in strategic places to satisfy our own desires. Who's being harmed in our irreverent, foolish culture? Men driven by foolish desires. It hurts everyone in their sphere of influence. This is what God sees in Israel. What must he see when he looks at our country? And we thus come to the end of this text. It's not a very hopeful passage at all. That's the way Hosea is. Remember, this is our theme for the weeks to come as we look through the book of Hosea. Unless you understand the full extent of the problem, you'll never truly appreciate the solution. And actually, our hope doesn't come from the book of Hosea. It comes beyond the borders of the book of Hosea. Here we read in this text what an awful priest does. What does an awful priest do? He neglects the teaching of God's word. He takes advantage of the sins of his people. He leads them ignorant, which leads to foolishness, not just foolishness, but harm for everybody, especially to the culture's most vulnerable. And this prepares us for what the Bible says about the Lord Jesus, who is our great high priest. Jesus is the priest who teaches God's word. He does so impartially, perfectly, completely without prejudice. That's what his opponents said of him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. How did Jesus respond to women who enter his sphere of influence? Jesus does not send women into prostitution. Jesus rescued women from prostitution. When in John 8 there was an adulteress that was thrown in front of him, he was the only man within 10,000 miles who could without sin condemn her and he sent her home to sin no more. He doesn't abuse or misuse anyone. He is Jesus, our great high priest. And he doesn't prosper by our sin. He doesn't relish our wickedness. Instead, he takes our sin, he made it his own, and then for our sin he died. He didn't live off it. He didn't luxuriate in it. He didn't benefit from it. He wasn't entertained by it. He suffered for it. He died. In the book of Hosea, we're beginning to see the full extent of the problem so that in Jesus we can truly give thanks to God for the awesome solution that he has provided in the Lord Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is an invitation from God's word to turn to him and trust in him. He is our great savior who has rescued us from this mess that we have made. And the invitation to turn and believe is open to everyone, to all. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for this word. It is sobering. You tell us in your word that it is a mirror and we see within ourselves, we see within those around us, uh, we understand more fully because of this passage 
what our rebellion against you does. How our irreverence leads to foolishness and how it destroys those around us. Lord, we ask you that according to your grace, our congregation would be, because of the Lord Jesus, a bastion of sanity in the midst of insanity. We ask, Father, that that seeing this um, damage, we would rightly appraise how we have contributed to it. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our great priest. You teach, you, you care for us, you rescue us, you offered yourself as a suitable sacrifice. We give you thanks for these things. We pray together this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.